You're listening to the Coffee Clatch Crew podcast with your hosts, Jason and Christina. Consider it your digital water cooler. I do hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Stand episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we take our stand with episode two, Pocket Savior, brought to you by Talkspace. Written by Josh Boone and Ben Cavill, directed by Tucker Gates, IMDb is giving this a 5.4 and Rotten Tomatoes a 54%, with our audience down to a 36%. I don't know what's going on. I mean, even on Twitter, I'm seeing a lot of people not digging it. But then, I guess it's very divisive, because I see, on the other hand, a lot of people really enjoying it, including ourselves. Yeah, I've heard it both ways, and there's not a ton yet out about the episode. It's still fairly soon afterwards, but people are either saying it's much stronger than the premiere, or they liked it a lot less. There's not a lot in between. It's difficult to measure it, because this episode was completely different from the first episode. This one was about different characters, almost entirely. We did get a little bit of Harold and some of the other characters we met in episode one, but this one really concentrated on Larry and uh, Rita. And Lloyd. And Lloyd, Lloyd yes. Henry, which... You know, we'll talk about, yeah, I think there's a couple of things going on here. Number one is it was a lot darker than episode one. And much like we compared it to Haunting of Hill House last time, that in the beginning, at least, the first couple of episodes, you're getting introduced to a new character each episode. Here with The Stand, it's two or three new characters. But I think your enjoyment of the episode depends on how invested you are in the characters you're meeting that episode. Harold is a very interesting character. And whether you like him, you hate him, you don't know where to fall, I think you're intrigued by him. You definitely get to love Stu in episode one. So now having to pull back from that and start over again, meeting new people in episode two, I can see where that's hard to keep changing gears, especially as we talked about with the nonlinear timeline. Mm. I have to say, personally, I absolutely loved this episode. I think I might have liked it more than episode one, The few problems I have are also bigger than episode one, but they mostly come from divergences from the book, which we will get to later on. Let me tell you what the critics said about it, because I think it makes sense. They say, as a whole, this episode is much stronger than the pilot, even as some of the overarching problems, like the hastiness with which the show has to develop these characters operating under the confines of a limited series, persists. A lot of the scenes happen faster, with more heavy-handedness, And there's still a lot left to be desired in terms of character development for the women of the ensemble. But the pieces are starting to click into place. This is a story about the choices different people make at the end of the world, ones which have immediate consequences. If you're not familiar, you learned right away in the beginning of this episode, Pocket Savior, the title is the name of Larry's album. So Larry being a singer who started to find his fame just before the apocalypse. I know. Tough timing. His hit song, Baby, Can You Dig Your Man? And I thought we were actually going to hear it here. He got on stage. He introduced it. He had the guitar. We've been waiting to find out what does this song really sound like since the book came out 42 years ago. Um, In the audio and the miniseries 94, they hum it a little. They give you a few bars. Many characters are singing it throughout because it's a song that was popular right as the world was ending. Right. But they all sing it differently. (laughs) with different tunes so you don't really know what it sounds like and of course larry's cut off here before we get a chance to find that out um i think it's an interesting 
metaphor for Larry that his album is called Pocket Savior. And I, I can't wait to talk about him because I think Larry is perhaps the grayest character that we have met so far. He is not easy to define when we get into good versus evil. Where is he going to fall? We don't really know. Yeah, he's a very flawed individual. I was going to say much like all of us, but even more flawed than many of us. He is a good guy, but he does messed up things to people that he, sh- that he cares about. You know, it's funny. I just watched last night on Disney+. Plus. They just released it. Um, on the 25th, Soul, which is a Pixar Disney film. And it's very reminiscent of this episode. And you're like, wait, hold on, what? (laughs) All I mean is a musician just gets their shot and then something happens. Ah, okay. Well, some of the details are different about Larry. And I'm going to say some of the unlikable qualities, if you want to call it that, are heaped even more upon him in this adaptation more so than in the book, because they're looking for a way to shorthand to really get to the essence of his character. And I think you do boil down to the same point of what Larry's going through, who he is. But I want to break it down as we go through the plot, because there are some changes. Before we get to that, though, let's talk about some stats and fun facts, and then we'll introduce our new faces and places. We mentioned that the director of this episode is Tucker Gates. He's new for this series, but in the past, he's done X-Files, Lost, Bates Motel, Homeland, a bunch of things. We're also trying to notice the music of the episodes more, what's happening, especially in an episode that is tied in with music notes, and there was a lot. We heard Demon Host early on in the episode. Space Song by Beach House, which is playing as Larry and Rita leave New York. Islands in the Sun. I'm sure you recognize that one, Jason. Hey, Hey by Weezer. Yes. (laughs) Playing at the shootout with Lloyd Henry in the convenience store. And Brand New Key by Melanie at the end. What did you think of the music here? I liked it. I like the way they're doing music so far in this show. It's a little different. And at times you're like, does that fit? And it does, actually, the more you think about these songs. I like it. I'll tell you what I love this time around. I mentioned missing the guitar music scoring, the very kind of twangy acoustic guitar from the 94 version. Mm -hmm. Well, we're not getting obviously that same soundtrack, but we did have a little bit of solo guitar scoring, especially when we got to the Larry scenes that was very reminiscent of that. And I was happy to hear it. Yeah, I like when creators aren't afraid to at least give a wink to their predecessors. Yeah. And that's exactly what they've been doing. A lot of little winks and little uh, elbow knocks. <laughs> I also wanted to bring up two quick things from last episode. We mentioned the dreams that our characters are getting when they go into the corn. They meet either Mother Abigail or Flag. How it was a reminder, speaking of nods, of Children of the Corn. Yes. There's actually a reason for that. Now, I wasn't a big Children of the Corn person. I saw the movie many years ago, but wasn't a huge fan. Apparently, Hemingford Home was the setting for that story in King's original novel. Oh. And Hemingford Home being the home here of Mother Abigail. Oh, I see. That's why we're tying them together. It's not just a fun Stephen King Easter egg. It is, but it has a little more meaning. Well, since we're talking about episode one and some Easter eggs that we missed, Jordan Hanley via Twitter said, Did anyone else notice Harold got a rejection letter from the... At Cemetery Dance in Hashtag The Stand. I could not see. Even I watched the episode again. I couldn't see what was written on there. It was very fast. I did notice, though, when Harold later goes into town to the antique shop to get the typewriter, 
there's a store called Dairy and Sons. And I bet you there is hundreds of little things dispersed throughout the episodes that we're not picking up on. Well, if anyone's wondering, wondering what Cemetery Dance is, Cemetery Dance publishes horror and suspense from authors such as Stephen King, Dean Koontz, Ray Bradbury, William Peter Blatty, and many others. Oh, Koontz. Okay, that's interesting. As we said, we will point some of those out as we see them, but if you notice others that we miss, definitely feel free to write in and let us know. Contact yes. at coffeeclatchcrew.com. Yes, absolutely. Write to us, call us, or uh, tweet us. We'd love to hear from you. One thing we should note, if anyone hears weird noises, if we sound a little different, it's uh, the day after Christmas, and we are doing this via Zoom. I'm currently in my mother's kitchen. I didn't realize how loud a fridge can be. Just when it turns on. Well, I'm in the basement, the quietest place I could find, and I'm hearing dogs barking and clicking overhead. We're going to try not to focus on that and move forward, but we're sorry about the audio disruptions. We're doing the best we can. Let's get into new faces and places. We mentioned we got really three big new people, but there were quite a few that I want to talk about. First, Larry Underwood. In the 94, played by Adam Storkey, and this time around, Yovana Depo. In both, Larry's a young, narcissistic singer-songwriter who in the beginning of the story is starting to achieve significant success with his debut single. But they repeatedly point out to us some of his flaws. Uh, mainly in the books, we get this through the point of view of his mother. We don't see a lot of her, Alice, here in this adaptation. But at one point, she tells him, you're a taker, Larry. You came home to me because you knew I had to give. Not to everyone, maybe, but to you. We said in this series, Larry's boiled down to his true essence. He might come off as an even worse guy than the books because of some of the developmental shortcuts, but ultimately it is effective. Larry exists somewhere between good and evil. He's talented and charming, but undeniably selfish and reckless. He wrestles between self-preservation and caretaking. And I think that's really the point. Every time when it comes down to it, am I going to save myself and do what's right for me? Or am I going to stay here against some pretty difficult circumstances and try to help you out? And at least throughout a lot of the beginning in the apocalypse, Larry will choose himself most of the time. I think they're doing a great job showing Larry. First of all, I'm really enjoying Yovan as Larry. I think he's doing a fantastic job. Definitely a strong casting choice there. Something I do anticipate, and we've already seen it, is because of what you said, how Larry is really somewhere in between good and evil. We see that he chose to help Rita... But then once Rita was potentially bringing him back into danger, he said, you're on your own. That's it. Yep. And then he let go of her. So he is good, but there's little tinges of him that could make him bad. And I believe those qualities is why we're going to see Flag and Mother Abigail wrestle with him. He will be one of the characters who will see both of them the most. Because Yeah, he, he's a pawn they both want to utilize. We, we see it with the woman he wakes up with after he slept with her. The second he realizes she's sick... He is bolting out that front door. She tells him, you ain't no nice guy, Larry. I thought you were a nice guy. And he hears those words over and over again in the books. One of the big changes, and we will get to it, is his friend Wayne Stuckey, who comes on stage at his performance and accuses him of stealing this song, another difference from the books. It does go to show that's an amalgamation of a couple of different stories that Larry went through. He wants to be a good guy. 
there is a good guy underneath him somewhere. And his mother really explained that so well. She thinks it's not that you're bad, but you are a taker. You always have been that way. And there's a possibility for you to be more, but I fear that it's going to take some major catastrophic event for that to come out of (laughs) you. Of course, foreshadowing what's going to happen later. I do think one of the biggest downfalls here is we don't get to see much of Alice Underwood and how he relates to his mother. That was such a strong character development for you to see him through his mother's eyes. Mm. Mostly here, I mean, we do see her disapproving a little bit when she's at the show. We see how he responds to her passing away, but that's kind of all Alice gets. You know, it's unfortunate. I kind of wish that this was a multi-seasoned show. And the first season really just involves what's happening before and directly after the virus is released. And then season two, we could go into the journey to choosing their sides, where they lie, the good or the bad. And then season three could be the final stand. That's exactly how the novel was broken up into three books. And it was just like that. Book one being Captain Trips, the apocalypse, everything breaking down, the end of the world. Uh, Book two being on the border, them making their journey, gathering up, rebuilding. And book three, the good versus evil. So that's in essence what you're saying. And it was a lot more linear storytelling. I, I don't, I'm not minding the time jumps like we discussed you're missing something of their journey and then being pulled back and forth between good and evil because already in this episode, we're opening up with Larry getting to Boulder and Stu telling him, you're one of the five people that's going to be on the Boulder-free committee. Mm. Mother Abigail herself chose you. So while we do feel like he's going to be a pawn between Flag and Abigail, we wonder which side he's going to fall on. We're getting some of those reveals we were nervous about with this type of setup. And I I also wish we just had more time like you for it to unfold a little more slowly. Yeah. Because they show when flag goes to talk to Larry or woo him that you can see, you can imagine him winning very easily. Flag seems to be trying to use the humans desires, regrets and insecurities to woo them to his side. And Larry's got a bundle of all three of those. Yeah, and how about the way he responds to Flag in the dream, right? He sees his name on those Vegas lights. Yes. He's got his guitar. He starts singing right away. This is great. In fact, he doesn't see Mother Abigail till the very end, her face just sort of in shadow. I would think he's leaning more towards Flag's side at this point if we use the dreams as a measurement. Unfortunately, the journey does show us a little bit of him coming more over to the side of the good in Boulder. So... I do wonder if those are giveaways. I'm still not sure based on how this is laying out. It looked like Flag was about to win. And that's when you saw Mother Abigail use that drama of her cane, slamming Mm. her cane down and almost, I guess you would say, blocking Flag. Next up, we had Nadine Cross, who were still just getting small pieces. And I, I won't get too much into this, but... I was a little nervous, episode one, that Franny's character was suffering from the way it was being portrayed here. We weren't getting to see enough of her. I figured, well, this isn't really her episode. (coughs) But I feel the same thing is happening here with Nadine. In the 94 version, she was played by Laura Sangiacomo. Here, she's played by Amber Heard. In both, she is a teacher at a private school in New Hampshire. But after the outbreak of Superflu, she finds Joe, an emotionally damaged young boy who has turned feral, as they describe it in the books. 
he is violent, refusing to wear clothes. I mean, here he's got some clothes on, um, unable to speak. He's been through a serious trauma. We kind of don't know much else about Nadine, except she does have this strong connection and she's taking care of him. There is something between her and Larry, although she is putting up boundaries about what that is. She doesn't want him to stay in the house while she's unpacking. She wants him to take Joe and leave. And she's hiding secrets. I mean, right at the very beginning in the tent, she's wearing a Blackstone necklace. Yep. So Flag has found her and assume, I, uh, I don't remember specifically and don't, uh, don't tell me, but I'm assuming if you get the stone, you've given him a promise, quote unquote. Yeah, it does feel he's inviting you over to his side. The people we see him give it to, at the end of this episode, we'll discuss more. Lloyd gets one. Uh, He tells Lloyd he wants him to be his right-hand man, and that's almost emblematic of his promise to Flag that he gets the stone. Now, in a dream, we see one being offered to Harold. We don't know if he's gotten one in real life or not yet. Uh, They haven't shown that to us, though we can definitely feel from this episode he's tipping more over to the evil side of things. And then, of course, you've got Nadine. Uh, It would it would seem that way. Yeah. And to be honest, at this point, I don't really care too much about Nadine, but that might be on purpose because we didn't really see much of her. But I was so interested in Larry's story whenever she was on. I was like, oh, I don't care about this. Yeah, I think there's, much like Franny, just a lot more to be seen of her. I'm not sure why we're getting brief intros to these people amidst other storylines. How are we going to go back to them? That's really uncertain. But we are getting a glimpse into both of them and how they relate to each other through Joe. So Joe is this boy in 94, played by Billy Sullivan, here by Gordon Cormier. And very little is known about his pre-plague life. I have more information. I won't tell you that here. Right now, we're just getting the fact that he's 11 years old, also from New Hampshire, where Nadine found him alone. There was more to this story because she tells Franny, he's come a long way uh, from when I first found him, and we've been through a lot together, but she doesn't elaborate. He's still not speaking. He does have a connection to Larry. It's clear he feels comfortable with him, and that seemingly was forged through their shared love of music. I mean, Joe is even sleeping with this guitar he gave him. He won't give it up for a half a second. Uh, Really cute. I like that. Moving along, we also get a brief glimpse at Ray Brentner. This character has undergone a gender swap in the 94 series. It was Ralph Brentner uh, and also in the books, played by Peter Van Norden. Here, Ray is played by Irene Bedard. Now, Ralph in the books is an amiable Midwest farmer and army veteran. He meets up with several other people, and they form the first group that traveled to Nebraska there to meet Mother Abigail. Despite a lack of formal education, Brentner possesses a great deal of common sense and skills with tools, machinery, things that make him important to our central group of characters when they arrive in Boulder. Although we get just a little bit of time with Ray in this adaptation, I think she's going to be a very different character than Ralph. She's very close with Nick Andros and Mother Abigail. It appears that they're staying together in this house where Mother Abigail's living. Yeah. And she kind of introduces Larry to them, but we don't get much else about her yet. But the other big player here is Lloyd Henry. In the 94, played by Miguel Ferrer and here by Nat Wolf. Lloyd starts out as a petty criminal who, together with Andrew Polk Freeman, engages in a killing spree, resulting in six murders, Polk's death, and Henry's detention in a Phoenix jail while awaiting trial on death row. What'd you think about Lloyd? I think I'm going to love to hate him, to be honest with you. He's an idiot. 
and this is just guessing, but I don't think he was really too bad until circumstances happened against him, and then he was he just flipped, and he's like, "That's it. I'm I'm totally bad. I don't care." Like he never wanted to kill anybody. I'm so interested and happy to hear that you picked up on that. He says repeatedly in the books, mm-hmm. I-, "I would have only done small shit except for Pope." Pope pulled me into it. We do see Poke pokerizing people. That was his word for it. And we get that. I like that. He's trying to force Lloyd into killing someone as they hold up this convenience store. He's gotten progressively worse the more time he spends with him and then kind of has to soak it up once he gets to prison that he's treated like a rock and roll star by the other people on death row. He's got some bit of power and recognition. But once he meets with his lawyer at the jail in the books... The lawyer kind of scares some sense into him that if he doesn't show a little bit of remorse and wisen up, they're going to execute him. He comes to terms with how serious his situation is, plus everything he goes through after people start dying and he's left in that jail cell alone, it changes a lot about Lloyd. So I think that you are right. Lloyd's not a great character. He's done a lot of bad things, but I think that He's been pulled into a life that perhaps he didn't entirely choose. He doesn't know if he can be anything more, but he's experiencing a slight change of heart during the apocalypse, the downfall of everything. Maybe he would have died a different man there in that jail cell if it wasn't Randall Flagg who found him. He's going to be a different man now, too. We'll have to see now that he's pledged his very soul to Flagg. We're going to love to hate him. And that brings me to Randall Flagg because we get a good deal more of him in his interactions with Lloyd. We've talked at length about the difference in his portrayal from the 94 version with Jamie Sheridan to this version here with Alexander Skarsgård. Flagg is known as the dark man, the tall man, the walk-in dude. Whatever you call him, he is the embodiment of evil. Like Mother Abigail, he appears to various people in their dreams, offering the dreamers with a choice. He attracts those who are drawn to structure, destruction, power, a desire for vengeance, we find out through Lloyd. He tells him you want to get back at those people, right? Anyone who would treat you that way? Those who have been forgotten or neglected feel they will be recognized on Flag's side. Well, there's a lot to talk about here, so why don't we get to our crow's eye view? We're going to break up the plot as we did last time to make it a little easier to digest. First, we'll talk about events from the past with Larry and Rita, Lloyd and Flag. And then what's going on in the present time at Boulder. So we open back to five months earlier in New York City, where we meet Larry Underwood, backstage before his performance, drinking and doing drugs. Right away, he's doing lines of coke, he's yelling at Stacy outside of his door who wants him to play this gig, but his band members are sick, so he doesn't want to go on alone. He comes outside to confront his mother, who is not happy with his behavior. I mean, in about 10 seconds, you kind of get to know who Larry is. Then he comes on stage and he's about to start playing solo, uh, reluctantly, (laughs) but he's going to do it until a man arrives in the crowd and starts harassing him. Wayne Stuckey, who accuses Larry of stealing from him when they live together and then attacks him, leading to a fight on stage. I'm wondering if the actor can't sing because, you know, whenever there's a moment where they could have him do anything. Are they just afraid now after all this time to take a a stand on how does baby can you dig your man sound? Probably. Because no matter what you do, someone's going to be upset. Yeah. But I do notice that Larry has very good stage presence. Mm. And they did do a good job of making me believe that he is or was definitely on the precipice of being a star and he has some talent. When he's cracking the jokes, you guys have the guts to come out 
you know, even though you have the sniffles. Yeah, us New Yorkers, right? We're New York tough. And then as Wayne is arguing with him, you can see Wayne is really sick. I was surprised that he lived as long as he did in this episode because he looked like he was on the end of it already in the bar. I think he's living at this point by sheer willpower of revenge. He wants retribution from Larry. And I think the beats in, the, in those scenes were very well done. They got you involved really quick, right from the tension you feel as soon as you see Larry in the backstage uh, doing the coke and drinking to him on stage where he's like, is there security here? Hello? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you're right. He is charming. He's able to bring the audience immediately in, but they don't have that with, with his mother. And I think you could have seen that when he greets her outside. He lies to her. This is something he does often. I was just having a, a drink backstage. Yeah. You know, she's like one drink. Yeah. <laughs> But all the talks that he has with her in the books, she knows. She knows what he's been up to. In the novels, he was living in California. That's where he got his big break. What happened was he got a little bit of fame, a little bit of money when that first album reached top of the charts, Baby Can You Dig Your Man? And it went right to his head. He started a huge party at his beach house. Tons of people came and it got completely out of hand. The drugs were flowing for four days long. He had no idea the bill he was racking up, Hmm. people breaking things in the house, ordering food, thousands and thousands of dollars. And Wayne was actually sort of a friend who was at this party and seeing how people were leeching on him. And he takes the time to pull him aside and say, I know you're too high to figure out what's going on, but these people are taking advantage of you and you need to get out or you're going to be in trouble. You got to go somewhere else, lay low for a while, let this thing settle. And so that's when he decides to go back home to New York City for a bit and see his mother. But she, despite his lies, knows immediately what he's up to because this is Larry's character. This is who he is. He can try to charm her all he wants to hear my new song mom gonna be rich and famous soon i'm doing really well and she's like no you came here because you're in trouble what's Mm. going on well that night larry dreams he's in the desert as we mentioned he sees flag with the vegas lights he hears the sounds of creatures in the darkness i don't know could be weasels could be snakes and flag appears flashing in and out a pool of green light he awakes next to a woman he realizes quickly is very sick and runs out of the apartment at the sight of her as she throws things at him, yelling he's not a nice guy. Outside, he receives a call from Bellevue Hospital about his mother, and he heads there to find the entire place, including the hallways, a wreck with stretchers of people, sick and dying from the superflu, body bags piled up in the back hall. These are the scenes, both in the book and here. I know we saw the CDC last time, but the plague is becoming real to me now. It's a lot scarier, the reality of what people are going through. Oh, yeah. It's helpless. There's nothing you can do. To the point where the hospital sends her home so that she can die in her own home. She doesn't even send her home. They've left her out in the hallway. They don't have lists anymore. They don't know who is where. It's sort of like when Larry talks to the nurse, whatever, man, figure it out. Do what you want to do. Nobody cares if he just puts her in a wheelchair and takes her home. Because there's nothing they can do. That's Larry's decision. At least I can get her back to her apartment, be with her. As he arrives there, he sees Wayne has showed up, yelling at him that he stole his song. But he manages to get his mom upstairs and into bed. You know what? Uh, That was a good tension moment. Because you don't know what Wayne is going to do. Because it's believable that he'll just shoot at this point, even though 
Larry's mother's right there. And he's pointing the gun, and Larry's saying, you know, let me just get my mom upstairs, and then I'll come back down. And I really, I felt like uh, any second now he's going to start shooting. Yeah, I wondered why Larry doesn't seem too concerned about that. Maybe because he knows Wayne from before? Yeah, I think so. And Wayne probably knows his mother. And he's, he's just so preoccupied with his mother in this moment. He sits with her as she lies there dying, and he manages to get just one sentence out before she goes. He says, I'm sorry I'm such a fuck-up, Mom. And I thought that was really heavy. He might understand this is going to be the last thing he says to her. Yeah. And that's what he wants to do, apologize for what he's turned into. Afterwards, he returns outside to find Wayne dying. And what does he do? Because this is a highlight of Larry. I know you're keeping drugs somewhere, man. Let me get you some. At least take the edge off. You'll feel better. But no, what he wants is to steal them for himself. He goes into Wayne's trunk and finds a huge duffel bag packed with drugs, takes it, and leaves. He makes his way to Central Park where he passes out on a bench. And the next morning, he gets up and he hears gunshots in the distance and the monster shouter. Monsters are coming. Monsters on the way. He also encounters the man in a hospital gown who, it turns out, his lifelong ambition is to run around Yankee Stadium stark naked and jerk off on home plate. (laughs) That was a funny character. I love that. Larry says, I'm not judging you, man. You do your thing. I love when when, uh, he starts walking away, you hear the gunfire again, and the way the guy just falls onto the ground and the chips go everywhere. (laughs) He was great. Oh, Larry's thinking to himself, though, I'm just going to go this way, maybe find somebody normal. I like the way this episode shows us. It's not just going to be heroes who are left after the apocalypse. We said in episode one, we might get some people who are just bad and agents of anarchy like Cobb. We're also going to get some people who are just wacky, like this man who thinks, well, we can do whatever we want now. Isn't this great? Someone like the monster shouter running around in the background, warning people. And then... Larry finds somebody else, a well-dressed woman sitting on a park bench who offers him a seat. She introduces herself as Rita Blakemore and tells him, you're very pleasant to be around, and it's wonderful you're not crazy. Rita Blakemore was a character from the books, a pretty important one, but one that we didn't see in the 94 adaptation as they sort of rolled her in with someone else. But here she's played by Heather Graham. She's described in the books as a wealthy middle-aged Manhattanite who lived a pampered life and quickly showed she was not ready for the post-apocalyptic world, resulting in tension between her and Larry. So she is described very differently there as somebody who can't deal with this new reality. As a brief example, when they decide to set out and leave the city later on, Larry's packing up all the stuff they're going to need. They head out, they're walking many, many blocks, I don't know, 30, 40 blocks, before Rita stops and she starts hobbling a little bit. And he finally notices she's wearing some ridiculously expensive pair of open-toed sandals like that you would put on to go to a nice restaurant. Nothing that you could walk in an escape plan out of the city. She's got blisters all over. Her feet are bleeding. And he yells at her. He's so angry because this was one of many examples that he's going to have to really take care of her and look out for her. And he doesn't want that responsibility. Uh, Rita's shown to be very different here. In fact, I like that they give us a little shot when they're leaving of her wearing sensible white sneakers. Yes. She's a much smarter person. There is something a bit off about her, though. The scene where she meets him and she takes out that gun. What do you make of that? 
At that point, I was still trying to figure out what kind of character she was. And I thought, for sure, she's a little off. But then as we got to know her, I did see, okay, she's very wealthy. That's a nice place. But I felt as a whole, besides that one scene where she freaks out in the sewer system, I felt she was a lot more capable of a person. Yeah. I, in the books, it almost makes it out to be that someone's taken care of her whole life. You know, her husband who gave her tons of money. She never had to worry for much of anything. And now she's just looking to transfer that to Larry. And she tries to ingratiate herself by having sex with him. It's not that she doesn't like him or want to be with him, but she thinks if she just keeps him happy, uh, there's a point where he wants her to eat breakfast. She's so nauseated by the smell of the dead bodies in the city that she winds up throwing up. But he's angry again. Why didn't you just tell me you didn't think you'd be able to eat this? Mm. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with your behavior. I think they do want to empower Rita more here. They want to make her a stronger character. She is able to get out and leave those sewer systems and find a way out, remain alive to actually save Larry yeah. later. Which I and, do want to talk about when we get there. <laughs> yeah, and, and yet there's something else going on here. So it feels to me like they didn't know how to modernize and empower Rita 100%. They still fell back a little bit on the way she was in the books. And so... The character winds up slightly confused to me. I agree. Uh, but anyway, here they agree to stick together. Larry shows Rita what he used to do before the super flu. You know, he shows her a billboard and his name's on it. He thinks he wanted his mother to see this because maybe it would have made her proud of him. As they're standing there and he kisses Rita, we see in the background this disturbing shot. There's a dead horse in the street and a crow is pecking out its eyeball. Yeah, that was... Uh... That was intense. Uh, flags watching? Yeah, for sure. There was a few crow sightings in this one. He's been watching and he will interact with Larry later on in the sewers. But you know what? I liked what Rita said to Larry. He says, you know, I finally got, got up there on that billboard, but now there's no one here to see it. And she gave a different angle. She said, this is actually awesome. You're going to be up on that billboard forever now. Mm-hmm. She said it a lot more eloquently than that, but... Yeah, I, I agree. It. it was poignant. She's kind of funny. They have this witty banter going on back and forth together. They feel very comfortable in a short space of time. Yeah. You think they're going to make a great team. They go back to her apartment. They have dinner. They have sex. They, he has steak. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> they look out the window at this dying city and they reflect on the fact that there's 8 million corpses here. They've got to get out. They can't stay here. So the next day while starting out of the city... Things go bad pretty much right away. They encounter a man who offers Larry $1 million for 15 minutes with Rita. Hey, you! Hey, you! What do you want? I'm gonna give you a million dollars. Thanks, man. We're good. I'm serious. Look. I got it right here. You can have every cent of it. If I can borrow her for 15 minutes. Get out of here. Now. That's a mistake. Oh, my God. It's okay. Should have taken the deal. They're seemingly cornered, hiding behind a car, when Larry and Rita manage to slip into the sewers beneath the streets and use his cell phone GPS to navigate north towards the George Washington Bridge. Rita, right off the bat, does not like this plan. 
She's very uncomfortable, but she's going along with it for a while until they hear the sound of rats. And she is borderline attacked by them. Well, I don't I think, know I think how that, much it's just her freaking out because they're falling on top of her. But I think the initial rat that actually screamed at her was Flag. I wondered that too, if they're trying to separate her yeah. and Larry here. I think so. Uh, Larry pleads with her to stay because above ground, if she leaves, those men could still be there. They could find and kill both of them. But she can't take it anymore. She heads up, leaving Larry alone. He continues to navigate deeper until the waters are chest high. Ugh. It's becoming quite frightening. A swooping crow causes him to lose his phone, but he hangs on to that duffel bag, keeping it dry over his head. Of course. That was definitely a flag. Priorities. And if that weren't clear enough, as he's waiting further in, a dead body starts to float by, and it appears to be his mother. This was rough. She's pleading with him, rats crawling out of her mouth. Pretty disgusting. So Larry freaks out, (laughs) and the crow starts attacking him. And that I didn't understand. If this is Flag, it it really seems like he goes after him. I think he's trying to beat him down right now, emotionally. Just break him? Yeah, just like you saw by the time Flag got to Lloyd. You know, he was a dying, beaten down man. It's like taking candy from a baby. He's taking a soul from a baby, basically. And I think that's what he was trying to do with Larry, working off of his insecurities about his mother and about his regrets about his mother. Well, he does say he almost lost his mind down there. Uh, I'm not skating over the fact that this is a very different scene in the books. We are going to get to that. We're going to talk about it in our closer look, the Lincoln Tunnel. Yeah, you were pretty upset about that. So if you're wondering, we're going to go into that deep. I want to focus on what they did here in this adaptation and how we felt about it. I actually enjoyed that scene. I thought it was compelling and scary enough. Envisioning myself down there, that would be horrible. And I like the way Flag, like we were just saying, is trying to beat him down here, but he doesn't show Larry that he's Flag. So that later on in his dreams, he can work the other angle, which is off of his desires, and show he's Flag. Mm. It's very smart. I think I said this in the last podcast. I always feel like the, the evil side has so many more angles to go off of to bring you to their side. Mother Abigail, we've barely seen... And that's got to be on purpose. Yeah, and I like that there is an almost visual depiction of the types of evil they're encountering. You know, on the streets, you have the regular, quote-unquote, human evil. What people might be like at the end of the world we talked about. There's going to be some out there who would kill you. Just survival of the fittest. There's going to be some trying to take advantage of the situation. But below ground, one level deeper, you have an even an even deeper level of evil. You're confronting not only your subconscious, your mind, your past, your regrets, but the embodiment of evil, Randall Flagg. I do enjoy this. Had I not read the books or seen the 94, I would have thought it's a good shorthand for Larry. I think, again, it's very confused for Rita. She's very strong and capable. She freaks out because of a couple of rats, but she's okay to go up and face these people who want to maybe rape, torture, kill her. Who knows? She's willing to leave Larry if that's what she has to do because she's strong. I don't know. Somehow she magically makes it who knows how many blocks north, magically is there to be right above the sewer where Larry starts banging on the manhole cover. She does get it off. The moment they come up, the GW bridge is right there. They have to do a lot of fudging logistics. To keep the story moving, yeah. Just to keep it moving. Well, yeah. I looked this up. Manhole covers are super heavy. Yeah. They can go from 90 to 150 pounds or more. 
the fact that Rita would be able to use her fingers to put into the little manhole holes and then lift that much weight and move it over, no way. What about the fact that there's tons of distance within the streets of New York? Even if they're headed in the same general direction, she winds up being above that one very spot and hearing to hear him. Larry banging. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's just kind of strange. But she does manage to save him. She helps him up, and they do see that the bridge is right there. It's crammed with stalled cars, but it does show their way out. And they just do another shorthand where it ends and we go to that night. They've made it past and they're camping under an overpass with a tent. Rita sadly shares with Larry that she thinks being alive when everyone else is dead is like being the last people to leave a party. Stupid and worthless. This is the biggest problem I had, the scene here. She doesn't even really explain. What we've seen so far is she's struggling, but she's strong and she's also a survivor. She was willing to do it on her own. We don't know what her life was like before this, but she's found Larry and they get along pretty well. They have hope now. They're out of the city. Her analogy, her metaphor to leaving a party is a bit bizarre and she doesn't tell him anything more. She lets him go to bed. She stays up drinking and then we see her swallow a bottle full of pills as she looks out at the rain. I assume she dies. I mean, she took the whole bottle and drank the whole bottle of liquor. So I'm thinking by the time Larry gets to her, there's going to be no hope. I don't know why she did this. We talked about in the premiere, the one other big female character we've met really, who we don't get a lot of background on, which is Franny, tried to commit suicide in the same way. I don't know if we love the same scenario for two women that aren't really being fully explored and are showed to have strength. Yes, they're grappling with things that any human would now. It's the end of the world. There's an apocalypse. They've lost everyone. What's left here? But I still don't understand what's happening in the psyche of these characters to motivate these decisions. And it does feel like a very similar decision here. It's a little lazy. Uh, Yes. I think it's too quick of a shorthand. And I don't know if the writers fully get from what I've seen for Annie or Rita yet. And unfortunately, this could be the last we see of Rita. One thing I really did enjoy is the aerial views of the city showing the destruction and the gloom. Showing that in these beautiful big towers, there's floors on fire, Mm. presumably from humans just going nuts over what's happening. Yeah, and that overhead shot when they see the bridge, the barges on fire, the cars all crammed together. And this would be one of the most terrible places to be stuck in, in an event like this, New York City. Oh, yeah, the worst. We saw that with, uh, Mm. for different reasons, but um, The Walking Dead. The last place you want to be is in the city. Now, on top of the tons of other differences, the death of Rita in the books, seeming death, is part suicide and part accidental. It's Rita who's addicted to pills from very early on. She has a, a bottle, as Larry describes it, of uppers, downers, everything in between, some to help her wake up, some to calm down her anxiety. He assumes she's been taking them since before the world ends, but now she's just doubling down. Mm. Anytime she feels anything, she takes another one to get her through. He's very worried about what could happen, but he figures this is her thing, and she probably knows what she's doing. She's been taking them forever. He mentions his concerns once, but then backs off. This night here together, she maybe just takes a few too many, maybe mixes two and doesn't realize it. We don't entirely know, but it's suggested that it could be in part an accidental overdose. 
as we said, we don't really know what the end of that is going to be. Maybe we'll see next episode. But let's shift gears and talk about our other big character beats from the past, and that's with Lloyd Henry. This episode is brought to you by Talkspace. If you're feeling overwhelmed right now, well, then you're a human being. There's a lot to be anxious about. After all, currently, we're all full-time workers, housekeepers, teachers, babysitters in our own homes. We're trying to keep everyone in their normal routines along with our own. But I'm good, Chris, because I'm still working out every day, go for walks, do push-ups. Well, that's not the only part of the routine, Jason. I'm not just talking about physical health. It's not easy to prioritize yourself, but your mental health and well-being also plays a critical role, especially in showing up as your best self for others. Well, Talkspace is making therapy affordable and accessible for all because we all need extra support to feel our best. Talkspace has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationship issues. No matter what, they will help you find the right therapist to achieve your goals. Talkspace has over 1 million users. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7 and they'll engage with you daily. They offer services including initial assessment, psychiatry, and couples therapy. And all this is at a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Plus, Talkspace covers 40 million people for online therapy through their insurance or employer insurance. So find out if you're eligible at Talkspace.com forward slash insurance. Well, for my day job, when I'm not podcasting, I actually am a therapist. So I can tell you these are really important factors. The ability for you to connect with your therapist 24-7 to send text messages, Let's say you have an appointment with your therapist on Tuesday, but something really big happens in your life on Wednesday. It's going to be difficult to have to wait till the next week to speak with them. Talkspace makes this a lot easier. Plus, if you're worried about it being online, Talkspace is secure and private using the latest encryption technology, and they're compliant with HIPAA regulations, meaning your information stays secure and confidential. Talking to friends and loved ones is important, especially during this time, but it's different from talking to a licensed therapist who has the expertise and knowledge to help offer you guidance. And Talkspace gives us that support we need at an affordable price. Here's the best part. As a CKC listener, you get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com or download the app. Make sure to use the code CKC to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com, promo code CKC. Take care of your mental health with Talkspace. Uh, In Maximum Security Prison, we see Lloyd being brought in, welcomed as a star, put into a cell with a roommate, Trask who informs him that Lloyd's antics have actually put the super flu outbreak back on page two of the news. That's crazy. We get a flashback even further to Lloyd holding up this convenience store with Poke. The federal agencies after them. As we said, Poke shoots a hostage and then tries to bully Lloyd into killing the clerk at gunpoint. Uh, Before he can, an officer hiding in the back of the store comes out and shoots Poke in the face, leading to a massive shootout. I don't know how, but that kind of was humorous. It was. (laughs) It was, even in the books. (laughs) So you see that Poke gets shot, and it's really gross, right in the side of the face. But he doesn't die immediately. Mm. And so in the novels, he's going, shot me, Lloyd. They shot me. Look out. (laughs) And just the whole thing. I mean, they're both kind of stupid. They don't really know what they're doing. Yeah, they're introducing themselves. Yeah. And Lloyd is much the same way when he arrives here. 
It starts to turn darker when he sees guards wheeling out sick and dead bodies. Trask, his roommate, becomes sick. But the guards ignore Lloyd's pleas to move him to a cell with a healthy inmate or at least bring him some water. They leave him there to die. Yeah, he says, you got water and points to the toilet. toilet. And then takes the snot from the dead person and throws it onto Lloyd's face. Ugh. Cop killer, he calls him. Oh, so gross. Uh, We see it getting worse. There's clips of the prison deteriorating with burning ashes falling from the cells above. And sometime later, Lloyd hears a lone man down the hall calling out, Mother? Another book reference. Starving alone in his cell, he first tries to catch a rat to feed on, but then stares at dead Trask's arm dangling from that cot. Finally, he hears a man's boots coming from down the hall, singing. He stops outside of Lloyd's cell and kneels by his door. He introduces himself as Randall Flagg. Lloyd admits that he's been imprisoned there for at least a week, and Flagg deduces he survived by eating his roommate. Um, I also like, again, slightly humorous. The depiction here is great. Lloyd saying, uh, I don't know how that happened. It must have been somebody else that <laughs> yeah. ate, ate Trask's leg. It wasn't me. <laughs> Flagg says, I don't know. That one looks a little thinner than that one. He says, uh, they look about the same to me. <laughs> uh, we, we saw this clip. A couple of weeks ago, we put it on Twitter. That's why you guys should follow us, at CKC Podcast. So it wasn't a surprise to me, but I still enjoyed the clip. I don't know if I like Skarsgård singing, though. That I was like, I've had yeah. enough of that. I know. I think they're trying to bring in some small parts of the Jamie Sheridan depiction of Flag, where he was that, as we said, a, a critic called it almost rockabilly demon. Yeah. All in denim. Uh, cheesy smiley face pin that moves singing these weird songs it's hard to describe i don't think they want to totally move out of that so that's their attempt at incorporating it but as a whole i still believe skarsgård's going to be a great randall flag i think he has the ability to be scary to be charming before we even talk about flag before he shows up i found myself thinking and i thought this was very well done you know, what if you were stuck in a cell when you know everyone is dead and you can't get out and you have no food? Can you imagine? And you have no way of killing yourself either. This goes on for quite a while in the books and you really start to feel bad for Lloyd because he has saved up a little bit of food from beforehand, kind of seeing what might be inevitably coming. Okay. And after everything goes wrong, he's trying so hard to ration it, but he's starving. He winds up going through all of it. He does have water from the toilet, so he knows he won't die, which is almost worse. How long is it going to take a man to starve to death? And he's thinking about a time when he was a boy, and he begged his father to get a pet rabbit. Uh, The dad didn't want to, but eventually relented and said, you've got to take care of it. And he loved it for a while. He pet it. He played with it every day. And then he forgot about it. He forgot it in the barn, forgot to feed it for a couple of days, came out and found the rabbit had died and before his death had chewed on his own paws. They were all kind of messed up. And as a boy, Lloyd wondered, well, he must have tried to scratch his way out of the cage to get out. That's what happened to him. But even in his little boy's mind, some part of him wondered if in the extremity of his starvation, he had actually chewed off his own feet in an attempt to survive. And there's some subconscious part of Lloyd that is thinking, I might have to do the same thing, continually looking. And it's not his roommate in the books. It's the cell next to him, but the man's leg is close enough that he thinks he can 
pull it over and get to it. And he waits many days. He does get a rat before he finally has to go to the worst thing possible. And he's almost had to block it from his mind because he can't think about it consciously, what he's had to do in this situation to survive. No, thank you. Um, I, too, love the interaction when Flag finally shows up. The first thing, really, Lloyd says is, I don't don't think think you're you're real. Oh, I'm real, baby. I'm real, real. Well, if you're real, then you must be the devil. That's not a very nice thing to say, Lloyd. This must be incredibly strong, radiating off of Flag. Lloyd isn't the smartest man in the world. And it's then that Flag holds the black stone out in his hand. Well, it's a key at first. A key that he offers Lloyd, the key to get out of the prison, the key to all the doors that are locked, that those key holders hold, right? Isn't that what you want to to get even to be one of those people? (laughs) So that's the emblem. It turns to a stone. And he offers to let him out in exchange for a deal. It occurs to me before I open this door and we go looking for dinner that there's a couple of things we ought to get straight between us. Yeah. You're a beautiful fella. I'm going to make you my right-hand man, Lloyd. You'll be St. Peter at the Berlin Gates. Oh, how about that? Oh, like that? I'd like that. <laughs> and you'd like to get even with the people who left you in error? Yeah. And not just them, but anybody who would do a thing like that. The kind of people who look at a man like you as as garbage. Yeah. I ain't fucking garbage. You're not garbage. I ain't fucking garbage. We're going to go far. It's a good time for people like us. Yeah. Everything's starting up. Now all I need is your word. What is it? What is it? What? All I need is what? what? Your word? You'll be loyal. No questioning orders. No. No falling asleep on guard duty. Now you give me your promise. And I'll give you the key. I promise you. boy. And the two walk out of the prison arm in arm with Flag saying, I believe this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So Flag clearly and definitively has one man, at least, his right-hand man on his side now. Uh, Last, let's head over to Boulder and see what's happening in present day. We start off at an abandoned hardware store where Larry heats up a grill, cooks for a group of people. They're camping inside tents, staying the night on their way to Boulder. They're all in a caravan together. We meet Nadine and Joe. We talked about their interactions. And getting back on the road, we see that they are at the outskirts of Boulder. They come to a stop where Stu waits to welcome them to the zone. He set up kind of a checkpoint. He does this whenever he finds out a new group of people is coming in. Stu goes out there with a few people. He, he arrives. He greets them. So Stu and Larry ride in together. And Stu says he knows who he is from Mother Larry, Abigail. Shit. I feel crazy saying that name out loud. Well, then we're all crazy because we all dreamt of her. Every single person here, as far as I know. And she told you how to be coming? Me specifically? Before everyone started arriving, she made a list of five names, people she wanted to run to the place. It was you and four others. You one of the others? That's right. About the last person she ought to trust to run anything. Why is that? What were you up to before all this? Mostly fucking things up for everyone. Disappointing the people I love. Not sure how that qualifies me, but I guess I'll have to ask. What? 
And I asked the exact same question the first time I met her. She said, all God's seen fit to show me is the who. Up to you to sort out the how. It's just hard to believe that this is all real, you know? Well, you traveled 2,000 miles to meet her. You must have believed a little. To be honest, at the beginning, I think I was mostly just following Harold. Harold? And Harold Louder. That's who I figured you were when we first saw him. Ah, OK, OK. Well, sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> but he's here, though, right? Harold, he made it? Yep, he made it easier. Yeah, I ought to see him. What about that girl he was with, uh, Frances Goldsmith? Franny. That's right, yeah, she's here, too. I like that we're going to see throughout this Harold through the eyes of someone else who only knows his deeds and actions and looks at him very differently than those who are close to him. Yeah, it took me a while to realize what was going on there. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, Harold has been writing on walls or on multiple things throughout the journey. And no doubt, Larry is one of the many who have been following those signs. And you would think in your head of someone like Stu, you know, that this is like a stew type character who's leading us to the promised land. Yeah, Harold has actually enabled survivors to get together and to regroup, to band up based on his smart thinking. There's way more to it in the books that Larry doesn't know how to lead a group of people in the beginning. He doesn't want that responsibility. He didn't even want to have to take care of Rita, feel responsible for her. And yet he finds himself doing it again and again. He doesn't know quite how or why he's put into this leadership position. But to start with, he finds Harold's sign. It gives him hope. He kind of pretends he's a detective and he's on the case. (laughs) And any place that Harold has been, he looks for clues. So when they first get together on bikes, they need to gas them up. He's got to find a way to siphon the gas from the gas station. And he starts to see all these things left behind of how Harold must have done it to get in there and to get the gas. And the way he knows it's Harold is every place he's been, he finds an empty payday candy bar wrapper. And that is one of Harold's weaknesses (laughs) in the books for this specific kind of candy. Gets him into a lot of trouble, uh, but... Larry keeps following those clues and telling himself, what would Harold do? And that's how he gets himself out of the situation and leads his people. By the time he gets to Boulder, he's looked at Harold as a kind of savior. He's this incredibly intelligent, smart man who's led his group of people here. And Larry wants to meet him. He wants to know who he is. He also believes Harold must be together with Franny based on the signs that he's seen of both of their names together. So he's put together this picture in his head that is really not like reality. Mm-hmm. And Stu and Franny are very surprised the way he talks about him. Can't wait to meet this guy, Harold. He's so yeah. great. I got to I gotta see him. Tell me his address. I brought him some gifts to thank him. Anyway, first, Stu takes Larry into town to show him around. We see cars, tents, people everywhere in the streets. We learn that most of them are staying in the college because the generators are up and running there and they can be together. They've begun to try to make this little society. The houses marked with X's are those they've already cleared out of the dead to try to make this livable. And Stu tells him that some of the people he sees are waiting to see Mother Abigail, while others just want to stay close to her. Understandable. Yeah, she comes out on her porch every day for two hours just to greet new arrivals. And Ray Brentner says, it's dangerous being a prophet, especially during times of upheaval. She's a prophet? Well, I guess that's not up to me to decide. Uh, Stu begs off. He's got to leave to take care of more tasks. He tells Larry, they all have a lot of responsibility here. This is important work they're doing. 
and he leaves him with Ray to meet Nick Andros and Mother Abigail. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the zone, Franny shows Nadine around. Before we go on, and I know this might come back later, but I was really interested in seeing a conversation with Mother Abigail and Larry. And the fact they leave that you they on a cliffhanger. Yeah, we do go back to Larry later on after the conversation. So, at least in this episode, we're not going to get it. I find it I guess it's okay. I don't know how I feel about that. I'm so curious on how Whoopi's going to do her, how mm-hmm. Whoopi's going to portray her, that I'm like, bring it on already. I want to have an opinion. Yeah, um, is it making it worse, building up this suspense like this? Yeah. Come sing me a song, Larry. <laughs> oh, that's right. They were like, well, we can't have him sing. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, meanwhile, elsewhere in the zone, Franny shows Nadine around. She explains that while most of the people are up at the college, some are already in houses, but they haven't gotten the power back on in the town yet. She tries communicating with Joe through sign language, but he doesn't respond. Nadine thinks trauma will do that, and they've been through a lot. She tells Franny she used to be a teacher, and Franny thinks they'll have need of that here, and wonders if Nadine will take responsibility for Joe, essentially be his mother. And Nadine agrees. After being shown their new house, Larry offers to stay for a while, uh, stay on the couch for a few nights, help her get settled, but she declines. And she wonders what the old woman told Larry, but he says he's not supposed to say anything. All right, here's the deal. We already know that she has the devil's rock, (laughs) I guess you would say, devil's stone, which means that she's made a deal, which says to me that she's a spy. And the only reason why she said yes in regards to taking Joe on is to keep up the good appearance and stay there longer to do exactly what she's trying to do there, which is try to find out more about Mother Abigail, what she's planning. So, Mm. Larry, what did Mother Abigail say to you? And then in her head so that I can go back tonight in my dream and tell Flag. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a good summary of her thought process. We don't see a lot here. We do get a really big tip-off when Franny's talking about, well, we all found this place because of the dreams we had of Mother Abigail. You're having them too, right? Mm. And Nadine's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I get dreams. But uh seems like she gets dreams of a different nature. Another weird thing, after Nadine sends Joe off with Larry, she stays back at the house and she hears banging sounds coming from a box in the living room. We see it's labeled planchette. I don't know if they couldn't use the words Ouija board, but essentially it is a Ouija board and something's going on with it. They leave us on another cliffhanger. We don't quite get to see what's happening. Ooh. Now this wasn't in the 94 version, so I'm not giving a spoiler, but maybe that's the way they can communicate with Flag. I do know the backstory from the novel, so I'm not going to say anything about that, but you're right. They didn't include it in the 94, so I'm happy to see that we might get some of that here. Dear Flag, please (laughs) use... Smaller words because it takes forever for the letters to go to each other. <laughs> Just answer yes or no. Yeah, it's a lot easier. Just say yes or no. Uh, our last scene in Boulder. Larry finds Harold's house, goes to introduce himself, and tells Harold about following him across the country whenever he was in a tough spot, asking himself what would Harold do. In fact, he brought him some presents to thank him. Uh, the presents include some of those candy bars in the books. Harold seems genuinely touched here. I don't know about you, but his face actually returns to something that looks normal. Yeah. He's so delighted to hear the way that Larry views him and the impact that he's had on other people. Somebody recognizing that he's smart and he has something to contribute. It's the same way he looked at those from the burial committee who were thanking him for doing such a hard task, welcoming him into the group. 
Yeah, I think Harold could be a good guy. His insecurities, his desires is to be liked, is to be wanted, is to be needed. And at that very moment, he's getting that until Larry brings up Franny. Changes real quick. You see Harold's face transform. And in fact, Joe steps back in reaction to it. Yes, he does. He reads it like a book. But I believe the the entire time when they were walking up to that house, Joe already had reservations about this guy. Maybe because he's a child and he's more open to these things, more susceptible to feeling these things. But he feels like Harold is not a good guy. Mm, he doesn't want to go there. And he does notice that face real quick where it seems Larry doesn't pick up on it at all. In fact, when Harold tells him, oh, friend, he doesn't live here. Larry immediately says, I understand. I was with someone, someone on the road, too, and it didn't work out either. We should have a drink sometime and talk about it. He apologizes for Joe, not talking or saying hello, explaining he's been through a lot. And Harold says, we all have. And that's where we leave it for now. Now, something to note, and we didn't go in the same order as the show did, but both episodes ended with flag. I don't know if you noticed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's seemingly coming out on top right now. It's a good time for people like them, as he tells Lloyd. <laughs> we have yet to see our good force and the effect that's having on people. But Jason, that wraps up our plot for this and takes us to our dream rating. So on a scale of 1 to 10 dreams, what do you give episode 2, Pocket Savior? I'm going to go up on this one. I did enjoy it. Although, yeah, I really enjoy Larry. Um, but I'm, I want more of Stu to be honest with you. And Larry's storyline was very, very interesting. But so far, my favorite is Stu with the government. I think that was awesome. Mm. But as a whole, I'm going to go up a little bit. I'm going to go to 8.2 dream ratings. Well, yes, I, I agree with a lot of that. As I said, they're in, a, in a number of ways, I actually like this better than the premiere. I do thoroughly enjoy Larry in every iteration as a character. He's someone I'm very intrigued by. I liked getting a little more of Randall Flagg. I was a little bit bored of the present day scenes in Boulder. I think it's slowing the pace down too much. They're leaving it on too many choppy cliffhangers. They don't really want to show you the present, so I'm wondering why they're going there at all. While the flashbacks work for me and interspersing, their execution of it is starting to get a little messy for me. I also don't enjoy the way some of these characters are not being fleshed out, such as Franny and now Nadine, and a little bit of the weirdness of Rita. Plus, they're missing one of my favorite scenes from the books. So it is going to bring it down just a little bit for me. I'm going to give this one nine dreams. Oh, wow, that's interesting because you called me right after you watched it and you said you actually liked it better. In a lot of ways. The, the couple of flaws, though, were bigger this time. Gotcha. Yeah, and this jumping back and forth is going to get, it's already getting to people, unfortunately. Yeah, it's making me scared. And I did say if their execution of it is not good, I'm going to start to have to dock some points as we move along the further and further they go with this. But on the whole, I'm still really enjoying this series and I'm excited to see where they go. Now, before we move on to our Clatcher segment, we want to take this time to let you guys know of some other podcasts that we have. Of course, on our regular channels, we cover many other shows like The Magicians, Game of Thrones, Westworld, and so forth. And you can always check those out at coffeeclatchcrew.com. But we also have our Patreon, where we deliver three fantastic podcasts a month. They range from our movie reviews, which our Clatchers vote on. Then we have our bonus podcasts every month, where we 
have a lot of fun discussing real things in the world, whether it be a history segment about pirates, the truth about pirates, who they really true were. The true meaning of Christmas. The true meaning of Christmas. Uh, this month, we'll be doing a look back at 2020, not just about COVID, but about other things that we might have forgotten. Any kind of deep dive topic that you might want to hear more about, we look more into it, we talk about it. Um, what are your dogs thinking? What's the psychology behind animals? What are the top best post-apocalyptic movies? Who are the best villains in different movies? I mean, we've covered a bunch of different things. That's why we call it a bonus. We get to just have fun. And then we have our coffee break episodes, which are more interactive. We give you a word of the month, fun facts, what's happening that month. And we do brief reviews of other things that we're watching in TV and movies that we don't cover in full format on these channels. It's a short breakdown, the synopsis, who's in it, what network can you find it on, and what rating do we give it? And it's a coffee rating. And you can actually get an overview right now. Go to coffeeclatchcrew.com. Click on Patreon, what we're watching. We have a whole page that shows you our mini reviews. And on any tier, you have the chance to be entered into a raffle each month and win a free item of CKC gear. That's three different tiers. You're bound to find one that's right for you. So go see what's happening at coffeeclatchcrew.com. Click on our Patreon page and check out all the additional content. You get more content from us, plus you know that you're helping Christine and myself to continue to provide podcasts. Now to our most valuable stand, where every week via Twitter, at CKC Podcast, we ask our Clatchers, who is your MVS? For episode two, we gave you Larry Underwood, Rita Blakemore, Randall Flagg, and Lloyd Henry. Coming in at fourth place with only 7% was Rita. Yeah, we talked about how Rita didn't get a ton here, her character maybe was a little bit confused, and potentially we could be losing her by the end of the episode. So as far as who took the most valuable stand, that's kind of understandable. Coming in third place with 14% was Lloyd Henry. Well, Lloyd had to survive through some pretty terrible things. He is not a great guy. We might feel bad for him, but by the end of the episode, he takes his stand on the side of Randall Flagg. The first official stand that we got to see visually for Flag, And he did provide some comic relief earlier in the episode. Oh, he's, yeah. He's going to be a love-to-hate character. Hmm. And in second place, with 29%, is Randall Flag. He's winning so far, guys. We knew that would happen. Evil is always winning in the beginning. And the good have to overcome. He's a tall drink of water. You're a beautiful man, as Lloyd <laughs> said. But coming in first place, with 50%, is Larry Underwood. This was his episode. Absolutely. He's a very interesting character. He is probably the most fleshed out so far in this show. He has a lot of flaws, but he also has a lot of greatness behind him. And I believe that Mother Abigail sees a lot in this character. Yeah. Can he find it? Can he channel it? Will the end of the world be the catastrophic event to bring out the Larry that Alice thought he always could be? I think the gray is quite intriguing. And the Clatchers agree. Kirk said, no question it would be Larry. He got the whole episode and the love scene. But Kirk would also like to write in the old man in the park because he's going to live out Jay's fantasy. <laughs> Thank you, Kirk. And Brian <laughs> says, not able to watch before you record, so I asked a good buddy of mine who has already watched it, and he said I should vote for Larry, so I did. Thanks, Jason, for the recommendation. <laughs> well, Jason, who is your MVS? Surprise, surprise, I'm going Larry Underwood. No way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for all the reasons I've already, we've already stated, I mean, he is a compelling character. And in the end, he will 
kill the devil by playing on his guitar and finally sing the song. Well, I'm going to have to be boring and agree with you. I did like getting more of Randall Flagg, but I don't think this is his MVS. I think this one has to go to Larry. Well, that's going to wrap it up for our coverage of episode two, except for our spoiler section. We are going to get more into that tunnel change from the novels. It wasn't the sewer system there and some other changes from the books. And quickly, I'd like to thank two of our Clatchers who have left us a review on iTunes. Thank you to Rubber City Kitty and Kirk for leaving us really great reviews. It only helps us. It helps other people to find us and increase this digital water cooler. So if you feel so compelled, go head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. And we will give you that bag with the million dollars of cash. Got it in a duffel bag in my trunk. That meaningless paper money as they put it here. Thank you so much for those reviews. We mentioned that this show isn't quite getting as much buzz as we would like to see it get. And I think that really does help people to find it. We had mentioned last time, we wonder how this adaptation is working for people who are not familiar with the story. I have gotten the chance to see it with a few family members who have not read the novel or watched the 94 adaptation. After two episodes, they are loving it. Oh, nice. They are very intrigued, excited to see more, but were at times a bit lost on the jumping of timelines. I think that a little bit of the breakdown helped to clarify stuff for them. So if they can have a podcast companion, I think that'll work out great. Well, if you are afraid of those spoilers of book knowledge, then we will see you next time when we review episode three. We hope you had a great holiday. For those of you who are still here, we're going to start out light on this and ease our way into the spoilers. I am in the way of knowing things, after all, though I didn't know this first reference. The man who offers Larry a million dollars for a night with Rita. His name is John Beresford Tipton. He's referenced in the novel. And I didn't know what that reference was when I read this. Thankfully, I'd been talking to Kirk, who has just recently read the book for the first time, and he explained this to me. I also did a little Googling on it. He was a character from The Millionaire, a TV series on CBS, 1955 to 1960. The show explored the ways that sudden unexpected wealth, a million dollars given to these people, changed life for two men, for better or for worse. The benefactor, a man called John Beresford Tipton. Oh, nice throwback. I also want to talk about the changes that we saw in this episode from the books. I mentioned there was one huge change because we were not in the sewer system there. We were in the Lincoln Tunnel. Now, why is this a big deal? The critics say this is maybe the most significant rewrite from King's work, radically altering one of the best-remembered sequences, maybe one of the scariest sequences in modern literature. In the books, Larry and Rita escape the city by a terrifying one-way trip through the Lincoln Tunnel, climbing over abandoned cars and bloated bodies. It's a change that will likely leave King fans, readers, scratching their heads. Why did they leave out one of the scariest scenes ever written? Now, in the 94 adaptation, McGarris talked about this. He said that in the books, the scene takes place in pitch blackness. His challenge, quote, was, how can I shoot this and convey darkness while still allowing the audience to see it? Well, he did that by using car headlights to temporarily illuminate the interior of the Armstrong Tunnel in Pittsburgh, which is where they filmed as a stand-in for the Lincoln Tunnel. He used unnerving camera angles and special lenses. Quote, we took a much more cinematic approach with these wide angles and things that weren't the norm for TV then. We did get to see it in the 94. It was brief, but they were actually in the tunnel. 
at that point, Larry and Rita had split up. Larry decided that Rita wasn't going to be able to deal. These blisters on her feet, not wearing the right shoes, taking all the pills. He couldn't take responsibility for her. And he wasn't going to die with her. So he goes on into the tunnel alone. And it is really unexplainable. I can't describe the way King has written this scene to be so terrifying. You can imagine a tunnel clogged full of cars and dead bodies, complete darkness. All Larry has is his cigarette lighter to try to make his way through. And his mind is just reeling. What if the bodies come back to life? What if they start coming after him? What if there's still military people that were setting up guard stations and they start shooting him down? Anything could happen and he can't even see where he's going. A half a mile, a mile starts to feel like forever. Is he ever going to find his way out to the other side? Finally, he hears a sound. He almost completely loses his mind and starts shooting off into the darkness. Turns out it's Rita who followed him. (laughs) She is hysterical. Please take him back. They have to go on together. He thinks he could have killed her. They do manage to make it out of there, but it is quite scary. Now, why did Boone and Cavill decide not to go with this? A scene that is right there, right for the taking and one of the favorites of the people. They confirmed that the tunnel was their original idea. But during development, the logistics of the sequence proved too daunting. They don't go into what those logistics are. But they say also the creative writing team made a decision that this didn't fit with their approach to storytelling. Cavill says we wanted to tell this story in a really grounded way. The challenge we set ourselves was to be faithful to the soul of this iconic book, but with a 2020 reality and logical character-based decisions. Why in God's name would you go out through the tunnel? There are bridges. Don't go in the dark where you know there are no lights, Cavill says laughing. This doesn't explain anything to me. I mean, yes, someone would quite obviously choose a bridge over a tunnel, but there's plenty of reasons why they do that in the book. They're trying to get out of the city as quickly as possible. There's people after them that could be trying to kill them. No, it's not the same exact way as here. It's not these men who have offered him a million dollars, but they do hear gunshots going off. They've just got to get out, and the tunnel is much closer. Plus, they don't know the state that the bridge is going to be in. They could go all that additional way to find out they can't pass, or maybe it's been blown up and it's crumbling. This is a sure bet, at least. They know they will get through and out of the city, so they have to take that risk. Yes, it is dark and difficult to film, but the sewer scene that they did is also dark and difficult to film. So I don't know. It feels to me a little bit like maybe they were nervous. I disagree with you, and again, I think I would agree with you if I read the book and I realized how amazing those scenes were. But if it was me in real life, I would not go in that tunnel. I'd find a bicycle... I'd ride my bike to a bridge. What if that meant you had to go miles and miles of additional way where there could be people out there looking to kill you and there's a possibility you get to the bridge and you can't pass it? I would still try that first. Really? (laughs) See, I struggled with myself, but I thought if the escape is right here, this is going to be hard, but guaranteed, even if I get to the bridge and standing, that's not going to be easy either. I think I would just feel the need to get out. This is a way out and it's right before me. Everyone's dead. It's horrible. It's terrifying. It's going to be your worst nightmare, but you can probably get through and then you're on the other side. I guess it does depend on how you look at things and what you would do if put in that situation. And I don't think this version of it is bad. I think they do give us some of the elements in that sewer system that we would see in the tunnel. I think it's 
completely acceptable shorthand. And if you've never read the book, I think it works fine. Yeah, I think it played well enough. We also discussed, though, that there was a bunch of other changes from the book. The fact that Larry is still performing and he's in New York City here, not coming from California to escape the leeches that came with the rising fame. The fact that he potentially stole his hit song from Wayne Stuckey here. I can believe it with what we know of Larry. Yeah, I think that change makes sense to tell us what's going on here. Uh, The fact that Larry really was an addict here. I don't know quite how I feel about that or where it's going to go, but this is obviously an ongoing problem for him still. Uh, The monster shouter. Is that different? uh, Just slightly. I like that they included it. He had a little bit of a bigger role in the books. They actually came upon his dead body while leaving the city, Larry and Rita. It was an indicator for them that there were still bad had living people out there because he'd been stabbed by someone else, a survivor. Uh. But notably, I guess the biggest thing in the 94 series, this brief part was played by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That's right, yes. So more memorable. And we talked a lot about how Rita's character was different, that Larry takes more on, Larry takes more of those pieces onto his character as well as their relationship together, his efforts to change The fact that he tries to be there, tries to be what she needs, but ultimately determines that he fails. He gets fed up with her. He leaves her. Even after they come back together, she winds up having this overdose in the end. And he thinks to himself, well, I can't take on that responsibility. I'm not good. Look at what I did here. But lastly, the Boulder Free Committee is smaller in this adaptation. We see it's five people in this series, Stu mentions. It will be Stu and Larry and three others that we're not sure of. But actually, it was seven people in the books. Curious. I think that there's going to be some other characters that perhaps this adaptation decides not to include just because there's so many people. Yeah, not enough time. And I I definitely get that. I'm eager to see who those other three people will be. But that's all I've got for you this time, Jason, except we know episode three will be titled Blank Pages next week. Any thoughts on Blank Pages? I'm drawing a blank. Hmm. Any final thoughts on Pocket Savior? No, uh, I really enjoyed it, even though I felt like it dropped on Christmas Eve. <laughs> it was the worst time for us because we were leaving, uh, but we got it done and I enjoyed the episode. I'm very excited for what's to come. I want to meet Trash Can Man. I want to see when Flag, if and when he gets, we get to see the evil side of him. I want to see that final episode where Stephen King... And his son basically rewrite it, rewrite the ending. Well, write a new coda anyways. Yeah. I mean, it feels like it will be more of an epilogue, which we already got an epilogue in the books. We, we got what felt like three epilogues. So I'm not sure where that's going to go. But I, too, am excited for that. I think who am I next excited to see? I mean, Nick Andros. We only got the briefest of glimpses here. I'm really eager to see how both Andros and Tom Cullen will be handled in this adaptation. What if we find out that these five people are actually the adults from It? This whole time, It the Clown, who is making up this whole storyline for them as a scary moment. Well, some people do think that It might exist in the same cosmic evil universe as Randall Flagg. That's right, yes. So, you know. (laughs) Never know. So Blank Pages up next. We look forward to reviewing that with all of you. And until next week... You come see me anytime. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CKC Podcast.
And if you'd like to support Jason and Christina and would love even more content, including bonus casts and movie reviews, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash ckcpodcast. This round is on me.